Hi, and welcome to Steve Wraith's True Crime Podcast. You can also follow my podcasts on YouTube. Just search Steve Wraith and click subscribe. Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening. Um, I'm here tonight with uh, with a good friend of mine, um, Steve Wraith, who um, actor, promoter, Mr. Newcastle, um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of plates uh, juggling. Um, who's got a new book, um, which is I believe out on Amazon Kindle now. Um, Every boy's dream, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that now. Um, and um, I'm going to ask a, a load of questions. Um, we've done these kind of things. We've done these kind of things a, f- a few times, haven't we? But I, yeah. I don't think we've ever kind of gone down this route. I don't think we've ever kind of kind of tackled this kind of subject before. So I think it'd be quite quite interesting. Um, my first question is: this, this is this is an autobiographical book. Um, it's your second one that you've that you've done. How how is it different from the first one, and how, how did it come about? Ah, it, I mean, it is different because it covers predominantly it covers Newcastle United in my life, which uh, has never been done before. The first autobiographical book, biographical book, what you want to call it, was the, the Craze the Geordie Connection, which which I co-wrote with Stu Wheatman. And um, that focuses on that 10-year period of working for the Cray Twins. So this one was a book I always wanted to do, but was never sure when to do it. Um, I didn't know if I was going to do it myself. I didn't know if somebody else was going to do it for me. Um, and I had a couple of approaches in the past by other authors who said, I would love to write your, your, your book and we can touch on the football, we can touch on the criminals, we can touch on the boxing, we can touch on the door work and the celebrities and, you know, cover all of that kind of stuff. And um, I've got to be perfectly honest that the two previous attempts just weren't really doing it for me. Um, I, you know, the first person who attempted to do it, style of writing the person was using didn't really suit me. I just thought it's never going to work. So I put a stop to it. The second, uh, the second author who tried it was essentially um, working on a separate project, which didn't quite work out. And that led me to stop that particular version. And, uh, you know, ultimately the third version, which is the book, which has been released every boy's dream with Jamie Boyle was good for me ultimately because, um, you know, I knew that Jamie had the experience of writing these kind of books with his Lee Duffy book and his Brian Cockrell book, etc. Um, he'd done one with Terry Dicko, he'd done one with Paddy Maloney. So you start to specialise in those books. And I, and I thought the other thing with Jamie is that he's, he's going to allow me to have some major input. And, I, you know, I, I was really keen because I'd, I'd, I'd already written a few things down and, and, you know, over the years I'd put together a few chapters and, really just so I didn't forget dates and times. And, uh, you know, I was able to give them, you know, give them to Jamie. And that was a good starting point uh, for the book. So it's different because it covers me life as a whole from, you know, from, you know, being born in South Shields in 1972 to to current, you know, the current day. So it it brings us right up to date. And I think there's something in there for everybody. I think, um, you know, those people who are, you know, wanting the Newcastle United stories, they're there. Um, but I think you know anybody who's wanting a little bit of the criminal stuff, it, there's a bit of that in you know me involvements with various people, and you know ultimately you know there's there's a bit in about the acting because obviously that's been my passion for the you know for the last few years. So boxing fans won't be disappointed either because there's a bit in there from from the boxing career. So I think we've managed to get everything in without boring the people who maybe are football fans with crime, boring the people who are interested in crime with football. Um, I think we've managed to, to get everything in, and there's a few 
personal stories which I've never shared with anybody before either. You know, I've obviously my close family know about various things, but um, there's a few stories which might surprise people about experiences that I've been through in my life. I mean, I guess that leads me on to the next question, which is, I mean, you're 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 an author yourself. You you write books yourself through um, through your own company. Um, how did that process work with with somebody else writing a book about you? How did how did that work with Jamie? I mean, we both know Jamie. Um, how how did that work? I had to really let Jamie get on with it. Um, is the is the best way of describing the process because. I am a bit of a control freak in, in projects that I, I do, but that's because I've got high standards and because I, I like to, to get things, you know, like to get things done and achieve things, you know. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I feel that, you know, if I, if I leave it to other people, that mm. it's not going to, um, you know, it's not going to be done properly. And I know that sounds a bit arrogant, but, you know, when you have high standards, you know, it, it has to be done like that. And the old saying, if you want a job doing properly, then do it yourself is is something which I've always lived lived and died by. And, you know, at least if I've given it my own, you know, given it a go myself and it's not good enough, then I've only got myself to blame. I don't have to then get into the blame game with people. But yeah, with Jamie, uh, as I said, he, he has experience in writing these kind of books. Mm. Uh, I, knew, I knew some of the people who he'd written the books with um, who said it was a fairly easy process. And he used a similar technique that I'd used with um, with Paul Ferris when I did Unfinished Business, um, which was a you know a, you know a selection of meetings over a con you know a certain period of time, and me you know the subject matter and a dictaphone, and you know trying not to stretch it out too long. I know Jamie was keen on doing three four hour sessions. I always feel that working on a two hour session is probably best because you know you you start to become tired or your mind starts drifting after three or four hours but you know we met halfway we did three hour sessions and you know it, it worked out well I mean Jamie Jamie asked the right questions um you know he, he didn't go off on a tangent he was trying to stick to the to the list which he had but we worked well, we worked well as a team because essentially I, I had my list he had his list and you know, he, he made it quite he made it quite clear from the start. You know that I wouldn't be hassling him if I was sending him a WhatsApp message or a text message about certain things. If something came to mind, he wanted us to send him it, and that was it. That you know that was that was how that's how easy the process was in in the grand scheme of things. But I think the fact that I was also able to send him those those notes, and I think I sent him something like twenty word documents of stuff which I'd written down over the years with. Certainly the Newcastle United stuff because it's easy to forget a game or a date or a, a particular incident that's happened and you know to write those dates down and or timings down or whatever was very important because you know the book will be judged ultimately by a lot of Newcastle fans who will go well we didn't play in the FA Cup on that date or we didn't do this or we didn't do that so yeah or Shearer didn't score that game you know what I mean if there's a little mention to a game or something you have to be right and. You know, those were the kind of things with which Jamie is a, you know, as a Celtic fan and a, a guy who lives in Middlesbrough probably would have struggled with, you know, knowing off the top of his head. Um, and sometimes the internet isn't as reliable as we'd like it to be. So from my perspective, to to get those things, you know, written down and done properly was was beneficial. And I think um, it certainly benefits the book. And, you know, Jamie was very happy with it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take it right back to the start. The the one thing a lot of people don't know about you is that you, as a Newcastle supporter, um, went to a private school in Sunderland. Yeah. How did that, how did that come about? 
Well, I mean, to be honest, I was two years behind everybody else. I went to the drive primary school. This was before Ofsted really checked on schools, etc. And I was two years behind everybody. I couldn't really read or write. Two years into junior school, uh, my parents put us into private education to try and get us back on track. They put us into St Anne's in South Shields, which was originally a an all-girls school, which had just started to admit boys. So I ended up in there for two years. I was the only boy in a class of 13. Uh, which which was, which was strange and uh, entrepreneurial skills really came out there. That's where I first did my first bit of business. Um, I used to show show the girls mine if they showed us theirs for for ten pence, uh, charging ten pence for the privilege. It's not it's not one of those things that you would think of doing, but obviously I did. And um, yeah, look, my dad my dad was setting his ways, very old school, and he felt that. If I spent my life in a school which was predominantly full of girls, there was potential there for me to, to maybe, you know, be, behave like a girl or, or you know, to, to have gay tendencies. He thought I was going to become a homosexual by staying at an all-girls school, which had just admitted boys. And see, that was the way of the world in those days. And my dad just thought that was the case. So he thought moving me to an all-boys school in Sunderland would, would benefit us, you know, and, and man us up a little bit. And he, he started taking us to play rugby, which I hated. Uh, and, and you know, had us walking around the golf courses at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning and stuck us in an old boys school. So it's no the wonder I, re I rebelled. But um, yeah, Argyle House uh, in Sunderland uh, was my home for the next five years. Well, six years last year, last year in junior school and, uh, for, you know, the, all of my senior education. So amazing to go down there. I mean, I, I always wore my Newcastle top. Um, it, it's sports activities. I was the only Newcastle uh, fan in my class and, and one of two in the entire school. Uh, but it has to be said, not many Sunderland fans went to the school. Probably two, two of the teachers that I can remember, and maybe it's about six or seven of the lads in the entire school supported Sunderland. The rest of them supported Liverpool at the time, who, of course, were you know winning winning leagues, winning FA Cups, and, of course, winning um, European Cups. So, uh, yeah, strange times. Um, character building, to say the least. And... Uh, Argyll House was certainly a school which which I will always remember fondly for the wrong reasons. You know, it was very like Tom Brown school days, the cane and that kind of thing. But uh, I had some great memories. And, um, you know, I, I still keep in touch with, with a couple of the lads who I went to school with and, and a couple of the teachers who, uh, you know, turned out to be good eggs, really. I think Argyll House was where you caught the, the bug for acting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I mean, um, my parents were also keen on me being able to... Uh, speak the Queen's English and you know my mum and dad put us in for elocution lessons they felt that if I if I wasn't going to be um somebody who could you know be a top mathematician or a or, or you know you know pass a lot of exams that at least if I could speak properly that people somebody who can speak properly can can certainly open a few more doors for themselves so my mum put us in for the elocution lessons I got put in for poetry competitions um, at school um, many of which I won um, and I enjoyed them. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the adulation. I suppose I enjoyed being centre of attention. I could, I could learn the lines. I could perform. And of course, anyone getting a pat on the back for anything, you, you're going to enjoy it. So, you know, I, 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 you know, that was my first taste of that. So, my parents recognising that I had that talent, then started looking for um, another way that I could express it. Um, so they got me into the People's Theatre in uh, Newcastle. Um, a drama club on a on a Saturday morning. It was called the Young People's Theatre, and mm. 
you know, there's people like Neil Tennant from the Pet Shop Boys going to that, and uh, you know, uh, Tom Hill, Tom Goodman Hill, as he is now, who's you know been in some fantastic films and is virtually in every period drama that you see on ITV these days. Um, so there was there was a, you know there was a few people who who went there who went on to to do really well, but that was that was the first steps on the ladder for acting. And and that led you then to kind of tour. You toured the world, didn't you? You toured America and. Um... Well, t- tell us how that how that came about. Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky because the Young People's Theatre obviously worked, um, you know, on a voluntary basis. We didn't have to pay to go, um, but they were linked to the Adult People's Theatre as well. And, you know, it's a fantastic building. It's had a, a, a renovation recently. I haven't got along since it's been renovated, but looks fantastic from the outside. And, uh, yeah, I was lucky that we went on trips. You know, you would, they would organise trips. And I ended up, um, you know, I ended up in a position where I went to America when I was 13. We did a three-week tour of America. We took uh, Under Milk Wood there. Um, I was part of the chorus, so I didn't have a lead part. But um, that was great because it meant that there was less work to do and more time to, to have adventures. But we went to uh, New Jersey. We went to Philadelphia and went to New York. Um, I had my first romance in Herkimer County, which, uh, which you know, I remember crying endlessly as I as I left me me, me first ever real love in in Herkimer. Um, but yeah, he was fantastic, and to go to New York, etc., just just an un- unbelievable experience. And um, three weeks out there was was you know surreal. But to do mm. three weeks away from home as a thirteen year old without your parents was was even more bizarre. And then. Uh, Fast forward three three years later, I was cast as the Artful Dodger in uh, in Oliver, and um, I was given the opportunity to go to Russia. Um, and Russia was just coming out of its, you know, out, 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 you know, the, the Iron Curtain had fallen. It was just starting to, you know, starting to wisen up a little bit and um, become more westernized. So they were building the first McDonald's there, and I had two fantastic weeks, you know, with with me friends. We didn't do many performances, um, but we did a couple, um, which went down well. But just to go to Russia was just an amazing experience to stand outside the Kremlin. And um, the two downsides of the whole trips, actually, and I'm not sure whether I covered them in the book, is that the Statue of Liberty was covered in scaffolding when I went to New York. So I didn't see the Statue of Liberty on that occasion. And when I went to Amer- uh, when I went to Russia, um, we went to Lenin's tomb, and that was closed for cleaning. No, so uh, the two major places that they wanted to go to were both closed. So, um, yeah, look... It- Fantastic opportunities as as a young man, but uh, and as a young actor to 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 go to different countries, you know. Mm. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about um, English as well in Argyle House because this is the, the probably the only question I've got that refers to any of this. But um, mm-hmm. I think um, your love of English started really with an English teacher who allowed you to study professional violence by John Pearson. Yeah. And that, that led you, I mean, it'd be wrong to do an interview with you and not cover this. Um, yeah. Led you then to a, a, an association with with the craze. Um, h- how did that come about? And the second part of that question, um, what was it like to visit Ronnie Cray? Right, okay. Uh, answering Vision Dom's question first, what is the generalised theme for the book, Steve? It covers the whole aspect of my life. It's like a, it's an autobiography, biography, whatever you want to call it. It's... Um, Covers Newcastle United, of course, me involvement with a football club. Covers me involvement with various criminals, different people who I've done business with, books for, etc. Obviously covers the boxing side of things and the acting. Um, yeah, English, Neil. It was uh, Peter Yates um, came in as my English teacher in third year senior as he replaced 
um, previous English teacher who just thought I was a waste of space. I seem to have personality clashes with teachers. The headmaster didn't like us. The maths teacher didn't like us. Um, you know, it just wasn't working out for me. I was more the class idiot at school. And um, the English teacher changed um, in the third year. And Peter Yates, he just saw something in me. And I was doing the first year of GCSEs, which meant the coursework was predominantly uh, 50% of your, your, your work, um, as well as 50% exam-based for your final result. And he just gave me the opportunity to add an extra book to the curriculum. So I was studying uh, A Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, The Crucible by Arthur Miller. Um, and then I was allowed to choose two other books of my own choice. So I chose Day of the Trippets by John Wyndham. And I picked up a copy of Profession of Violence by John Pearson when I was shopping on the quayside with my parents one Sunday morning. It was 30 pence, this orange book with black photograph with the craze staring out of this, you know, these two guys. And um, I read that I read that book after well, within two days. And by the end of the week, I'd read it again. And the English teacher saw that. He thought, look, there's a potential here for this, this pupil to, to do well if he's allowed to study this book. And that's what he allowed me to do. And, um, you know, God bless him for that, because I ended up in this position where I passed, you know, my English exam, passed English literature and English language, got a B and a C. And it was all because of, you know, studying that book. Um, going from, you know, that, you know, that exam pass, I decided to write to the creators. I wrote to Reggie Cray and Ronnie Cray at the same time, explained to them that I passed the English exam studying their book. And it basically became, uh, it became a pen pal relationship, you know, from there. I had a, a reply from Reg and Ron to say they couldn't keep up with correspondence. But then a few months later, I saw a young lad called Brad Lane who was corresponding with the twins, Reggie in particular. Reggie adopted him, in inverted commas, and uh, I wrote to him, and we kept up a correspondence. And um, it, it was it was just a fast, a fast-tracked experience. I went down to visit Brad and his mother, Kim, in Doncaster. Um, and that particular day, Reg, you know, Reg rang me um, at their house, and we spoke, and he told me that I should go and visit him. So I went down to see Reg in Gartry. That was fascinating in itself. Um, because Reg was a, you know, he was an institutionalised prisoner, and uh, you know, to go and meet somebody in prison, I'd never done that before. Um, so to go and meet Reg was was fascinating. But after the visit, he told me that I should go and see Ron. And and your question was, what was it like to see Ron? Well, it was it was amazing. Um, it was in Broadmoor Hospital. It was a big old Victorian building. Um, you know, I walked through the the ward basically so you didn't walk through a separate part of broadmoor you walked through the actual ward where the where the patients were kept behind closed doors and then you would go into this big um uh, room which had a stage at one end with big red velvet curtains and a stage where the uh, the, the patients would do performances and uh you would be sitting on you know t on chairs uh, around a table waiting for the patients to come in there was a cafeteria on the right hand side uh, where you would go and get your your soft drinks and and uh, you know your your food, and at the far end of the room was a, a big conservatory which led out into the uh, big gardens of Broadmoor. So you know if it was a sunny day, you could apply to go and, and sit out there. But yeah, on the on the day, um, you know the the door opened and through the door came this very small, smartly dressed man, blue pinstripe suit, hair slicked back, gold rimmed glasses. A white shirt on with RK embroidered into his uh, into his shirt, pair of Gucci shoes and a pinky ring, um, and just looking every inch the gangster. And he you know, came straight over and uh, introduced himself. 
and uh, you know shook his hand, uh, shook shook my hand, and uh, said, "You must be Steve from Newcastle." And that was it. We uh, we sat down, um, he clicked his fingers. Uh, the nurse came over and uh, lit his first cigarette of what turned out to be forty on the visit, and uh, which he chain smoked John Player specials. And then he said, "Would you like anything to eat, Steve?" And that was it. We you know he ordered we ordered some some food. We ordered some drink he had caliber non-alcoholic lager i think i had a coke um and a, and a burger and um he put his he reached over put his hand on me and just goes um steve i, I just want to ask you don't mind that i'm bisexual do you and now uh, i went well <laughs> i said actually ron i said i'm not that way inclined but each to their own and he, he just laughed and went good good and and that was it he, he broke the ice you know he was he was openly gay ron and um he just wanted uh, to let me know that i suppose but you know it was it was a fantastic, fantastic experience. I look back on it and wish I was, wish I'd been older, and I wish I could remember more of it. But it's still quite a vivid memory. Um, I think the big regret I've got is that um, you know I didn't get a chance to ask a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask. You know, there's, there's so many questions that I would ask now, which I, you know, I, I never even thought about asking them because it wasn't a contrived visit. It wasn't premeditated. It was it was something I did on the spur of the moment. You know. Right, well, I think we we can safely say we've crossed the craze off the list. Um, back to um, back to the, the one of the main themes of the of the book, um, Newcastle United, St James's Park. I, I've been plenty of times, sometimes with you. Um, what's it like? Tell people who've never who've never been. What's it like? What was your first game like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What does it sound like? I mean, St James's Park to me is it, it, it's a bastion of invincibility, as Bill Shankly used to say about Liverpool. It's uh, it's a, it's an amazing place, and I mean, the first St James's Park that I went to in 1984 is a completely different place to St James's Park now, and um, yeah, it's just exciting. It's an exciting place. It's it's a place where I've I've had so many great times with you know me me dad and me brother, um, you know who who are also season ticket holders at. At the football club and um it has so many happy memories it has a lot of unhappy memories um but ultimately it's 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 my club it's, it's a club that i love it's a club that i've supported you know with all my heart properly since 84 but you know i've always had i had an interest the first game i went to was in 84 um but yeah it just means so much but the original St James's Park was fantastic with the old, you know, the old West Stand and it was like a corrugated iron West Stand. And I mentioned it in the book, you know, walking up the stairs. I had to dress up. I'd been to other games with my granddad where I could wear my jeans and my trainers and, you know, have my hair scruffy. But when, you know, I went to St James's Park on this this particular occasion with my granddad Green, um, I had to like wear a pair of smart trousers. My mum, you know, was combing my hair to look smart. I actually felt, you know, like a right dick. To be honest, going to this game, um, and you know, I was thinking, God, this is the only downside that I've got to dress like this to go there. But when I got there, and I understood why, because I was going in the director's box, and I was, you know, getting an opportunity to meet people who I didn't really know at the time: Jackie Milburn, Bobby Cowell, um, you know, all of these, you know, famous FA Cup winners, uh, Joe Harvey. Um, who was the last manager to win a trophy at Newcastle Affairs Cup? And you know, I was in the I was in the director's box with these people having a cup of tea and a sandwich, and then getting taken out into the stand and you know sitting next to Peter Taylor, you know, the the famous commentator from Radio uh, Radio Five, you know, um, who who was commentating on the game, and just just an amazing situation to be able to go to uh, 
you know, to go to that kind of that that kind of place was absolutely fantastic. And it just stuck with us. I'd been to other games at other grounds. I could have fell in love with Gateshead. I'd been to see them play in the Northern Premier League. I saw them win the title. Saw Terry Hibbert playing and um but you know, Newcastle was for me. It was in my blood and uh, and that was it. I, you know, I, I say at the start of the book that, you know, um, you know, I I was born to be a Newcastle fan, and and I, I genuinely believe that. I, you know, I was definitely born to be a fan. But yeah, it's a great place. It, it's a cathedral of football, and you walk in, and now the development that's happened at that ground, it's a fifty-two thousand all-seater. It's, it's a wonderful place to go to, and you know, you you, you can tell when we when we've dropped into the championship over recent seasons. It's the one game that fans want to come to. They want to be there. They want to be. They want to see it. They want to be part of it. They're disappointed when the atmosphere is poor and it has been for many years because of the apathy due to Mike Ashley but um, you know there's nothing better than St James's Park in full effect and we saw it we've, we've seen it this season when you know we've, we've grabbed a couple of last minute winners against Crystal Palace and it was Almiron who scored or um, you know this, you know, Matty Longstaff scored the, the, the roof goes off it's, it's, it's against Man United it was it was fantastic but yeah fantastic place and you know um, everyone says that about the football club I know but Newcastle is special and you went from fan to fanzine editor. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that, because that took several different guises, didn't it? There were two or three different um, different names, and, and it, it got you your first kind of television gig, didn't it, really? We've never, never, never intended to, 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 to get into that kind of thing. Um, hmm. You know, the writing that came from, obviously, passing the English exam. And, you know, to, to do a fanzine was never in my mindset, but I'd, I'd written to the mag, mag fanzine which is still i think it's just an online presence these days i don't think it's a hard copy but i wrote to mark jensen the editor i wanted something published in there and i was told that the article was too controversial and i thought well if that's that's the kind of you know reaction you're getting then why don't you just do it yourself um so that was it i spoke to my mate in scunthorpe steve who came up for each game i used to go to the games with him um spoke to me dad spoke to me brother said look I'd like to do a fanzine. He's up for it. And the idea had come really from bumming into a load of lads from Bournemouth of all places. We'd played Bournemouth at St. James's Park. And I'd, I'd actually got a copy of their fanzine. And I thought, oh, I'd love to replicate that, but do it about Newcastle. And I got a little bit of advice off them. And then, you know, that was it. And um, my brother and me started cutting out photos from the Chronicle newspaper. Um, we got a typewriter. We started typing things up on the on the typewriter. My mate said he would photocopy it and staple it together. And that was it. The fanzine was born. So Mickey Quinn at the time was wearing the famous number nine shirt. And uh, we um, we essentially called it the Mighty Quinn. Thought it was a great idea, great title. And um, so did the public. They loved it. You, you know, Mickey Quinn was was in good favour with the fans. And uh, we did a, a couple of hundred issues of the first first edition. And it sold out 40 pence a copy outside the ground. And that's what you used to do with fanzines. Stand outside the ground before the home game. And sell it and uh yeah it, it went on as the mighty quinn for six seven issues um and then of course the inevitable happened mickey quinn left kevin keegan came in as manager um and obviously replaced mickey quinn uh we had gavin peacock and uh, Dar uh david kelly of course um playing up front in those days um but we put it out to the readers you know what would you like to change to and the number nine won hands down so the the mighty quinn became the number nine and uh yeah, it was great. Great experience. Uh, we managed to interview players. Um, we concentrated more on humour. Um, I didn't tell people that their articles were too controversial, so the more controversial, the better. 
Um, of course, a good fanzine relies on the team doing not so, not so good. So it, it tended to work at Newcastle quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we had, you know, we had 30, I think it was 36, 37 issues up the top of my head. Um, and I think we finished it when we got to Wembley um, in the FA Cup final. The 1999 uh, Cup final was where we ended it. And it was more down to personal reasons because ultimately, um, you know, my brother was working full-time. I was doing full-time work. My dad was busy. Um, Steve from Scunthorpe, Steve Cross had packed in, getting involved. He wasn't doing it anymore. And and we also find it difficult to get sellers. So, um, you know, the likes of Rob Blaylock was outstanding. He, he sold it virtually every issue for us. Um, there's a few other guys as well uh, who, who used to sell it on a regular basis. But we just found it difficult to get sellers. And um, although we had newspaper shop contracts by this time, people like Gillespie's and Smith's were taking it in and we were, were getting it into the news agents. They were taking a ridiculous percentage back off, usually 50%. And we ended up, you know, we ended up not, you know, not making money, but probably breaking even on, on the majority that were sold in the news agents. So it just became very difficult, um, just became very difficult to do it. Um, but it was something that I would revisit later on with with two other magazines. Mm. You, you touched very briefly on, on a full, you said you had a full time job and, and work. I know you, you, you tried to pursue the acting um, from, a, from a young age. It didn't quite work out at the time. And so then you went to um, you went and run a post office. How did, how did that work? Yeah, that's run a post office, not rob a post office. Well, um, I'll talk to you about the robbery in a minute, but <laughs> uh, John Ball, it'll be out first weekend July, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the the post office was really just the only option I had. Um, I left school with no, you know, very few qualifications. The two English at GCSEs and geography, and I, I still don't know how I passed geography. It can only because I, you know, wrote my name at the top of the paper and I could find my way to school because I, I, I still genuinely don't know how on earth I passed that. But I, um, I ended up uh, going into Gated College to do a BTEC, uh, Newcastle College to do a, a BTEC diploma, um, in performing arts. First year was going really well, and then I ended up doing a pantomime uh, for a local company, and I was ripped off. Um, and to be honest, that that just I thought if that's acting, you can stick it. I was doing three pantomimes a day. I was playing the dame. Um, I was putting the set up, doing the show, taking the set down, going on to the next social club, and then you know repeat the fade. Three shows a day it was absolutely crazy. Didn't enjoy it at all. Um, and I thought if that's acting, you can stick it. So the only option I had was to make money was to go into the family business. So I remember being in the Wheat Chief pub with my dad and my granddad and my grandma one night on a Sunday. And uh, essentially just going, you know, I want to work in the post office. And they were going, you're joking. Well, I, I worked in the news agents as it was. Um, but, you know, it was the post office site. And I said, I want I want to learn the post office. So fair, fair play to me dad and my granddad. They got chatting. They spoke to somebody who worked in the post office in Burnerfield, one of their friends. Um, and they got me a month's trial uh, in the post office, how to do the all the counter transactions, how to balance the books and, you know, do the balance at the end of each week. And and, and that was it. You know, I, I went, I came back from that month's trial and, and did really well. Uh, they recommended that I could, I could manage a post office. And my dad made a big sacrifice for us. You know, he, he basically 
you know, helped me engineer the, the purchase of the post office from my grandparents. They wanted to retire. My dad, uh, my dad basically helped me buy the post office. Um, he took the risk. Um, he had a lot of trust in me to do it, but that was it. So we went in as business partners. My dad was 99% partner and I was 1% partner. Um, so I became the youngest sub um, the youngest post office manager in, in the UK. Um, I was 17. And uh, my dad said that if I worked well and worked hard and I worked on a reduced wage, that by the time I got to 21, he would reverse the... He would reverse it. I would become 99% and he would become 1% partner. And uh, he was as good as his word. And I was as good as my word. Um, you know, I, I basically ended up running the post office when I was 21. So, yeah, I did that uh, from the age of 17 up until I was 27. I gave it 10 years. Um, but, you know, it wasn't for me. I, you know, it was character building. I managed to write my first book, The, the Craze, The Geordie Connection. Um, but I, yeah. You ran a, a post office, weren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, it was great for Reg because he was always after stamps, um, always on the phone for stamps. And, you know, he, he always knew where I was, you know, Monday to Friday. He knew I was working at the post office between 9 and 5.30. So he'd always be able to get a hold of us. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, he always found it amusing and, and certain people did. And, and it gave me somewhere to sell the craze merchandise, which didn't go down very well with uh, the head office um, at the post office when they walked in one day and saw me selling Ronnie and Reggie create T-shirts on the wall on the shop side. <laughs> and from there you did well you did door work at kind of the same time really um um but from there you you then went to do kind of what what a lot of people would think was kind of would be your dream job you went to work for the club yeah 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 i mean working for the club was something i would never have dreamed of and i mean that's where the title of the book every boy's dream comes from because it you know for a Newcastle fan, it's every boy's dream to, to sign a contract for Newcastle and uh, to pull on the, the the black and white shirt and, and have a run around on St James's Park and uh, and I've I've achieved that I, you know I have run around on the, on the pitch as well which which I never ever thought I would do but yeah I mean to do that was was really um, it came from the fanzine stuff uh, I, I was obviously writing the fanzine and and when Sky came in and, and took over the televisation of football. Then you found that they required a lot of um, a lot of fans to talk about the games. Um, so they would they would do vox pops with supporters pre match, after match. They would have shows like the footballers football show where they would get you on TV and you'd be in the audience. And I was quite you know, I was always invited to these things because I could always have a conversation. I could always ask a question, and, and because my knowledge was always quite good. So I ended up in a position where. Um, you know, my phone would ring and ring and ring. You know, from local newspapers and uh, and television and radio outlets. You know, to, 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 you know, for me to have me comment. Um, and and what what tended to happen was that, you know, I would always be in an argument with the club. I would always have a disagreement with the club about something that you know they weren't happy about various things. You know, fans weren't happy about various things, and I would end up being asked about that. So we ended up in a position where. Um, Freddie Shepherd, who was chairman at the time, um, rang me up and said, uh, Look, you know, we're interested in getting you involved with this new fans forum idea. Would you come in and have a chat with us? And I went, Yeah, that would be great. So I was introduced to David Stonehouse, who was the chief executive at the football club. And um, he basically, uh, he basically said to me, Look, he said, um, We've got a guy called Rogan Taylor wants to set up a thing called the Fans Liaison Committee. Would you meet him and have a chat with him? And then there might be something for you in this if if we'll move forward, you know. So that was it. I met Rogan Taylor. He told us what the idea was. It was to set up a, a committee of fans who would meet with the club's fans liaison officer 
on a regular basis. But they had to try and sell that idea to the fans. So Rogan Taylor said, yeah, I'll do that. I'll um, he, he, he pieced it all together. Uh, we went out and we did road shows together where we spoke to supporters and we talked about um, the different issues and the different problems. Um, and then he came up with a, a way of having people nominate, uh, put themselves forward for fans to vote for them. And that was how the fans liaison uh, officer and committee was born. Um, because of all my help and because of the way that I'd done it, the uh, the club offered me the opportunity as, as fans liaison officer. It suited Freddie and Co. at the time as well because I was quite critical of them, often on television, often talking about them. And uh, it suited them to get me on the payroll because then I wouldn't be able to criticise the club. So so that's what they did. And I got a lot of criticism from fellow supporters. There was a few fanzines really had a pop at me. Um, mm. Used the career angle a lot to, to have a pop at me and, and slag us off. And uh, not a nice way to do things, you know, but I understood the reasons, and uh, yeah, look for me, I was in I was in a unique position. Though I got to go to the club uh, and sign a contract with the club, and there's many many times I would sit and have me me lunch, just with a packed lunch, sitting in the stand looking out onto the pitch. You know, uh, unique opportunity and something which I didn't take for granted. I mean, you've, you've touched on it there, um, and you you mentioned it. Well, you do you deal with it quite well in the book. I thought. Um, Trolls, mm. you you get you get loads, and um, I mean I've had experience of it today. Um, how do you deal with it? How do you? I mean, you're put up on this pedestal as Mister Newcastle, which you've never really wanted to be, but the, the media come to you when they want a you know when they want you know a talking head or or whatever, and then you get slated for it. I mean, how how do you deal with these 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 keyboard warriors? It's really difficult because um, keyboard warriors have no idea what's going on in your life. And, you know, I think the problem is that uh, on some occasions they can be, you know, giving you a hard time. And then ultimately, you know, you're suffering, you know, something in your personal life. So it, it is hard. Um, I've always lived by the adage that you put your head above the parrot but then you're there to be shot at. Um, I'm a self-publicist. I always have been. I've always put myself out there. Um, in, in everything that I've done. A lot of the things that I do involve working with the general public. So writing books are for the general public um, so they're there to be praised or criticised. Um, putting on events, whether it's with uh, you know Floyd Mayweather or Alan Shearer or events where I, I require people to come along and support those events for me to be able to pay the act, but also to pay myself and pay me bills. Um, so I have to deal with the general public there. Um, writing. For you know, fanzines or loaded mag loaded magazine like I have in the past, um, or whatever means that you have to have you know your your face and your name out there to to promote what you're doing. So ultimately, everything that I've done, even even the post office, um, you know, was working with the general public or, or doing the doors was working on the front doors of various nightclubs and bars. You know, you know, up and down you know the country and abroad. It was you know you're putting yourself out there. So I'm used to it, but the recent you know, trend of trolling on social media is 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 a, is a, you know it, it is relatively new. Um, but some of the stuff I've had to take has been has been nothing short of diabolical and, and obscene. You know, uh, I think the worst one was when somebody said that the the hope my wife was going to get raped. Um, you know, I've had, you know, I've been called a nonce and a racist. Um, on on more than one occasion on on Twitter. Um, I've seen people not actually tag me in stuff and call, and call me a nonce and a racist. 
neither of which you know neither of those things are true um you know i'm i'm the most least racist person in the world and i'm certainly you know not a nonce uh, you know a sex a sex offender it's 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 horrendous that people can get away and call you these kind of things and i think you know the the tory and the ball jabs i can i can get away with you know i ran for the tory party i can't get away from it you know i had to publicize myself for doing it but as i cover in the book I did it for a reason. I ran for the Tories to stop the BNP getting in and my, you know, who were knocking on my door in my street. Um, so to be called a Tory, I often find, I find it childish. I, I just think, you know, I've always said that my vote is between me and the ballot box, but I've had to open up more about it. You know, I, I, I tend to vote Liberal in the general election and Labour in the um, in the local election because, you know, there's no other, no other party's going to get in in your local election. But I actually know most of the Labour councillors in my ward and they all do a bloody good job. So that's what that's the way I tend to vote these days. So calling us a Tory is absolutely ludicrous. Bald, yep, I'm fully challenged. Nothing you can do about that. But it's been my choice since I was 18 to shave my head like this. So, you know, I, I, you know, I just think, unfortunately, trolling is a, is a horrendous thing. It's part of our society. Um, I worry if we clamp down on it to a degree or you know stop people having you know a chance to express themselves because i'm a great believer in freedom of speech but at the same time i think we need some kind of anonymity lifted because i think you know the way to do it is i have i have a couple of accounts i've got my own account at steve wraith but i've also got at newcastle legends and i think it would be a simple way of you know a simple way of doing it would be to have at newcastle legends and then underneath it account run by at steve wraith and i think you know maybe say a way of being forced to do that would make sense, you know what I mean? Just so that we know who is tweeting from what account um, and everyone is held accountable for that. And I think, you know, you have to have a, you know, your, your, your proper name. I'm not saying you have to have a photograph. There could be some people who are, they were actually uncomfortable with having an image for whatever reason or, or, or whatever. So maybe it's not a photograph of the person, but certainly their real name, because you know, I think the time has come for that kind of trolling to stop. Because as I said, yeah, I'm, I'm quite a strong character, but, you know, even I can even I can have a, a wobble, and I, I certainly had one a few weeks ago when you know I had something going on in my personal life. But you know, I was I was you know trolled about various things online, and it just it, it, it can become too much. And I'm pleased to say that with social media, however, that you know the the outpouring of love and and respect is is far greater than the the minority that troll you. But at the time, you know, unfortunately, the one thing you do is you know you, you pick up on the negative and and that's it that's it but i could do that all the time i just need to google steve wraith and go onto the ready to go message board which is which is the Sunderland message board and they're constantly talking about us on there but again you live by the adage if they're talking about you you're doing something right aren't you yeah um i want to ask um You've got the most perfect bald head I've ever saw, along with Jason Statham, says Jamie. <laughs> um, you've touched on doing the doors. I'm not going to go onto it really in any great detail because there's other other podcasts and things where you've where you've talked about that in, in really good detail. But you left the doors and went to promoting full time. Um, what was the reason behind that? Well, I, I just got sick and tired of confrontation on the doors, and it sounds daft. I mean, I did it for eighteen years, but um, it was ten years ago that I that I decided to walk away from the doors. It was t Christmas two thousand and ten, and I just got to the first of December and just said, "I've had enough of this." I'd, I had a really bad night. I'd um, I'd started losing my temper a lot more, and I and I was always quite mild mannered and calm and collected in in, in any situation on the door. 
but we, we were starting to to work to uh, new rules. Uh, the smoking ban had come in, which meant that we had more people on the outside uh, mm. smoking in our faces, which which wasn't great. Um, licensing uh, licensing hours had been extended, of course, to 24-hour licensing, which meant that no longer was I going home from a nightclub at 2 o'clock, but I was going home at 4. Mm. Uh, getting in at 5 sometimes, and I had a, I had a young one. Um, my first daughter was born, and you know that came into consideration. Um, but they were they were cutting the staff. The venue I was at, I mean, you know, we had two thousand people capacity, um, and they were asking us to cram an extra three, four hundred people in for starters. But it, you know, instead of increasing the staff, which you would have thought they would have done, they were reducing the staff. Mm-hmm. So we ended up on a, you know, it used to be like something along the lines of one dormant per hundred people. So two thousand two hundred people in a nightclub, there should be twenty two dormant in there if you're doing your maths correctly. You're never going to have 22 dormant in, but you should have at least 12, maybe mm. 15. By the time I, I came around to 2010, I had an issue where I had eight dormant on a Saturday night for 2,200 people. And I was in a position where, with a smoking ban, I had to have me and me head dormant on the front door. And me, it was me the head dormant, me deputy head dormant. I had to have somebody on the inside door stamping for the smoking stamp. So there's three of us on the front door. That left five people inside on a four-level club, looking mm. after 2,200 people. Absolutely ludicrous. Mm. And um, no other wonder that over the period of that, you know, that 12 months, we ended up with more trouble inside than we'd ever had, which, of course, doesn't look good on the head doorman and his mm. team. It looks as if we're, the, we're at fault, you know, and we're letting the wrong type of people in. Um, but there was also flaws in the system because we ended up in a situation where the smoking ban was... Uh, the smoking uh, ban inside meant that we had a situation where people were getting in through the fence at the back of the smoking area. So you could have somebody thrown out at the back door. We might not hear it because we're dealing with an incident on the front door. And then you would have somebody get into the back of the smoking area, come back through, have a stamp on their hand because they're a smoker and come back in through the front door. So suddenly the person who just kicked off with somebody on the top floor is now back in because we haven't heard the call about them getting chucked out the back. You can see, uh, I get agitated now just talking about it, and, and that's and that became the that became the issue, and it, it, it was just this last this student nights became a, a bit of a nightmare because they they don't behave themselves, and, and because you had a big club, there was more of them and less dormant. There was more incidents. There was students taking their clothes off, were having to go in and grab people. There was, you know, huge fights, uh, you know, between different ethnic minorities in in the town on on student nights that were getting in. And it just became an absolute ball ache. And uh, I got there, as I say, the first first of December, and I stood there, and I was starting to do the road effort for Christmas. I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And and I, and I just, I didn't have anything to go do. I, you know, I was contemplating going back to do a, a degree in drama because I just started to do a GCSE in drama, which I was thoroughly enjoying. Um, and I'd started doing events, and I thought, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away. If I don't walk away now, I'll never walk away from doing the door. And I was surrounded by people who over the years had gone, hey, I'm packing the door in there next, uh, get this Christmas out of the way and I'm packing it in. And I was, I was surrounded by people who essentially were 10 years later, were still doing the doors. And I thought, that's just not going to be me. So I just made the decision. I thought, I'm going to give in. And I gave in before Christmas. That's the perfect time. So I told my manager, so I'm, mm. uh, I'm going to let you do this road because I'm not going to be here. And he goes, what? I said, I'm not going to be here. And he, he tried to persuade us. And then he just said, look, have Christmas off. Come back in January. You'll have changed your mind. So that's what I did. I had Christmas off. It was the best Christmas I'd had for 18 years. Um, and 
I just remember going back in on a cold, snowy January uh, Friday night, walking in to have a meeting with me, area manager and the manager of the club. And they were like expecting us to say that I was staying. And I just went, nah, I've enjoyed the time off, lads. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to crack on. I'm going to make a success in my businesses. And that was it. So I, you know, had a, I had a little bit of time to think. And then I set up um, a company called Players Inc. Event Management with their former, former Newcastle footballer, Joe Allen. And um, Andrew Brewster, who was a designer from Accent Magazine, we set up a we set up a magazine, a northeast football magazine first, um, and then we set an event management company up, and the and the and the rest was history. But never been back on the doors, you know, since then, and never never done any security work, and, and never looked back. Okay, we've got forty seven minutes in, and we I think we've actually mentioned his name yet. Um, if Mike Ashley was in front of you now, what would you say to him? Well, <laughs> I'd probably say what you're going to do next because um, he is going to sell the football club. He is leaving Newcastle United. Um, you know, he's going to concentrate on his retail businesses. I'm in a lucky position because I met Mike Ashley. I met him twice. I met him once, like most fans did, on the terraces when he was mixing with the fans. I met him at Wigan away. Got a photograph with him. Um, so it's quite a funny photograph. He looks really uncomfortable, as if he knows who I am, which, which he didn't. Uh, but the second time I met him was at uh, the Diamond in Pontyland. Um, Newcastle United had just been promoted back to the, uh, you know, back to the Premier League, and basically he was there. He paid for all the drinks on the night. It was a bit of a bit of a bone of contention with me. Me and my pals, who I was allowed to take, Kevin Nolan had invited us down. I went to the party. Turned up, there was nobody there. So I bought a round of drinks, and as I bought the round of drinks, the lads all went cheers. It cost us sixteen quid. And then two minutes later, Mike Ashley and the rest of the team walk in. Mike Ashley puts his card behind the counter. Nobody had, nobody had to buy a round for the rest of the night. So I got stumped for a 16-quid round, um, which the lads thought was hilarious. But, yeah, halfway through the night, I went up to Mike Ashley and I just said, look, I said, you know, from my perspective, um, you know, nice to see you, Steve Wraith. I said, I've written a few things about you. And I said, I've, I've, I've probably been one of your biggest critics. I said, but, I said, uh, congratulations on getting promoted. You know, what's your plans for next season? And, uh he turned around and said, oh, he shook me hand. He says, thanks very much, Steve. And, you know, he says, uh, you know, well, I run it like a business. He says, I, I look at the books. I see what's made money and what's lost money. And if there's anything lost money, then I, I change it. And he says, but to be honest with a football club, I just leave that to Derek, meaning Derek Lambayas. And that was it. And I was, you know, just about having a bit more chat with him. And then Derek Lambayas, who was a bit of a nemesis for me, came up to us and went, oh, look, Steve, tonight's not the night for this. And asked us to move on. And uh, I just found it a little bit, you know, a, a little bit, you know, off that the chief executive would do that. But, you know, I found Mike Ashley to be approachable. Um, you know, I've criticised him and I've slated him, you know, over and with due cause and due right over, over some of the decisions he's made. But, you know, he's off now. And, you know, as soon as this takeover gets announced, the better. And, um, you know, it, it shouldn't be too much longer. Phil Wilson says he's being based in Newcastle and being a proponent Newcastle upon time as a place, being a, a help or a hindrance in trying to progress your media, publishing, acting career. That's a really good question. Does where you where you live and where you're based and being a prominent kind of Newcastle fan, does that um has that caused you any has that been a hindrance to you or a or a benefit? And I say that as an adopted Geordie who's an incredibly proud Northeasterner. 
I think it's 50-50, Neil, to be honest, and Phil. Um, I think it's been a pro and it's been a negative. Um, as most most people who know us closely, I, I, I am up and down to London quite a bit. Uh, I've got some great connections down there, which which really came through my connections with the craze. But um, I, I think, you know, being in Newcastle somewhere, I'm an immensely, I'm immensely proud of the area. I, I love it and I always try to shine a light on it for the right reasons. Um, I think the fact that you know, I've managed to get myself some decent acting roles. I've managed to make my acting career a success so far, and it, it's I'm nowhere near winning an Oscar. But at the same time, I'm I'm not at the bottom of the ladder, which I was when I first started out. Mm. Um, they worked reads really well. You know, over twenty plus credits now. You know, uh, if it ended tomorrow, I've been on a major BBC TV program twice. Uh, done Vera on ITV, which is still one of the most watched detective series, and done. You know, so many great films and, you know, become part of the franchise like Rise of the Foot Soldier. So, you know, for me, I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve as that young lad at Argyle House, as far as an actor's concerned. But I still want to achieve more. I want to go so much higher in the acting world. And, you know, if me looks in and I continue to work in the right way, then hopefully that will happen. Um, with the publishing... Probably has because I think a lot of people think, well, those Geordie stories are not interesting. It's been difficult. It was difficult originally to get like the Sears, the Sears book and the NME book that we did. You know, the, we did pitch the NME book to Blake's publishing and they weren't keen on it. We did eventually get an offer off them and then, you know, it ended up going by the wayside. We, we self-published, which proved to be the right thing to do. The Sears book we kept for ourselves. We didn't want that to go to a main publisher and, and that's proved to be the right thing to do. I was always disappointed that the craze, the Geordie connection didn't get him, uh, you know, in with Blake's. I thought, you know, at the time and still it's one of the few books about, um, you know, about my, about the craze time behind bars. You know, it's very few books out there about that. So I'm pleased to say that Sean Atwood has took that on with his publishing company. So that's going to get its third rebrand and it's a new release. Um, the craze, the final years will come out later this year, thanks to Sean. So, you know, I'm, I'm you know, Trying to write the wrong with that one, I suppose, because I still think that's a, you know people still write to me and say pick a copy of your book up in Australia or New Zealand or Thailand or whatever on me travels, and it seems to be one of those books that people pick up when they're traveling and then dump in one of these cafes and people pick it up and take it, and you know so that book still does the rounds, and it, it's it was my first book and I'm still immensely proud of it, so it's nice to be able to to still hear that, but yeah, I don't think being based in Newcastle is is as much of a downer as people think. Um, I think my job in my generation is to is to turn people's minds around. You know, we're not cloth caps and whippets up here. You know, we're a progressive, you know, progressive set of people. And the imminent takeover by you know um, Amanda Stavely, the Rubin brothers, and uh, the PIF could see Newcastle, you know, being the place where everybody wants to come to to do business very soon. You, you talked about the science book. I mean, the science book was um, was an, an absolute absolute bestseller, um, and it you know it's gone on to have I think is it the third print run now. Um, yep, they get an entire chapter in the uh, in the new book. Um, what's what's the what's the crack there, and what's what's the what, what's the future hold for, for that project? The Sears have obviously been a big part of my life. Um, you know, I've known the Sears family. Uh, 
you know, I've known Stephen Sears longer than anybody else. You know, nearly 25 years I've known Stephen, but the the rest of the Sears family known the best part of 20 years. And um, it was always a project to to get the book done. They weren't interested in doing it, but then subsequently, you know, Conroy's appearance on McIntyre changed the moved the goalposts. Um, he was heavily critical of the Sears family, and they had to have a right to reply. And and we gave them that opportunity. Um, you know, me, uh, Rebecca Sears, and Stu, you know co-joined wrote the book um you know i did a lot of the groundwork Stu put it together after you know me and rebecca had, had really had really put it together and it became became a bestseller and there's no wonder i'm obviously working on operation sears at the minute which comes out at the end of the end of october um which is a completely different book um you know focuses quite strongly on a couple of big cases using depositions which i've been reading through over the last couple of years um and now the film um is, is is coming out off the back of a, a documentary done by media arts which is available on amazon prime so you know we've now got you know we've now got everything that we need for that to be successful and um you know we had a socially distant meeting this week with gary fraser the director and the script is now coming on the the lockdowns massively helped the project because you know we're going backwards and forwards with different ideas and um you know the the fact that the, the script is now being formed and developed and we have a beginning and a middle and an end now is, is fantastic it's it's all starting to fall into place so yeah that the sears will and have played a big part in my life and it's uh again you know like phil's question before about the area i think it's not necessarily the area i think sometimes my connections maybe you know maybe worry people or concern people the fact that i was involved with the craze the fact that i'm involved with the sears family uh, you know doing what i've done for them it doesn't make it doesn't mean i'm a villain um similar to you know meeting tommy robinson um like i have in the past it doesn't mean that i'm racist mm. uh, you know it doesn't mean that i'm a murderer because i sat with ronnie cray you know you you can't toss somebody with the brush i might know these people um i might be able to have a civil conversation with these people um but it doesn't mean that that's me it doesn't mean that you know what they do rubs off on me and i i always find that narrow-mindedness um mm. rather bizarre you know jamie who uh wrote the book um has actually asked is, is this book your chance about time to answer your to answer your critics which i think again is another really good question yeah i mean it is because there's a lot of stories in here which i never thought i would i, I would ever put out there at you know, it's developed over the last few years, especially with different people asking to do the book. And then the stories in here that I wouldn't have done if Jamie hadn't done the book, if that makes sense. Um, Jamie's written about villains and criminals. He's written about Lee Duffy. He's written about Brian Cockrell, you know, Warcry Publishing, who published the book um, and, and obviously published those books. You know, they've got an experience in that market. And yeah, I am seen, I am seen as being in that world, but everybody knows I'm not a hard man and I'm not a gangster. So... I think for for them it's a bit of a break from the norm as well. It's a, it's a move away from that. But yeah, it's definitely a chance to answer the critics. Um, you know, I've, I've had a pop at a few people, I suppose, in in, in a lot of ways, a, a right reply rather than a pop. Um, you know, the football hooligan chapter, I suppose, is something people wouldn't have expected to see. But there's certain things that get on you know get on my nerves, which need to be addressed. Um, yeah, I think I think everything's out there in the open. The stuff there that everybody needs everybody needs to see you know and um i think for for me you know it just it shows that it, i'm hoping that it changes a few people's minds there's some people who will read the book who will never ever meet me but who i hope you know maybe change their opinion on me slightly after reading the book when they read the reasons that i did certain things like the funeral march at st james's park for instance um yeah. you know exactly reverend wraith reverend wraith yeah exactly 
I've got um I've got one, two, three, four, five. I've got six topics which I haven't got time to ask you now. No, no, go for it, go for it. We're not we're not tied to an hour. If you're not tied to an hour, I can continue. I'm 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 grand. I've got a couple of a few quick stories that that are, are really interesting chapters in the book. Um first one, Roy Shaw. <laughs> Jamie's favourite chapter. Yeah, now Jamie's obviously written another book about Roy Shaw, um, so I'm I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested to know about this uh, this Roy Shaw character. I mean, the story was the story was covered in the Geordie Connection, but Jamie felt it was really important to put this in in this book. Um, I wasn't so sure, but you know, when I read the chapter, I thought, well, yeah, it 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 does have a place in there, and it's really just. You know, it's a story about a woman, you know, and it's, it's, it's probably a story which most blokes can read. It's about thinking with your brain and not with your dick, I suppose. That's the best way to describe it. And that's how I described it to Jamie. Um, you know, I, I just got besotted with a woman when, you know, I was young, free and single. And, um, you know, she used me and abused me, really, and chewed us up and spat us out, which is what she said she was going to do when I first met her. And I didn't pay attention. Um you know, she, in a nutshell, what she does is very, very clever and very manipulative. Um, and she essentially, you know, she essentially put um, uh, put some photographs to one side when she'd had some serious resurgery on her face. An ex-boyfriend had beaten her up. Um, and she showed me these photographs when we first started going out. And I found them quite horrific. She always wore a baseball cap. And that was the reason, because it was to, to, to cover the scars. Um so I never, I never thought anything more of those photographs at all. You know what I mean? We got over that. But obviously the relationship hit rock ground, which you can read about in the book. Um, but then she started going out with Roy Shaw. And Roy Shaw then suddenly had a complete dislike for me. And Roy Shaw, of course, was like one of the hardest men in the UK. He was uh, a bare-knuckle fighter. He used to fight for the governor title against Lenny McLean. Um, he was well-connected with a lot of the faces in uh, New uh, in London. Um, and suddenly had a complete dislike for me, which meant that I couldn't go to any of these events in London. And people were saying, oh, we can't invite you, Steve Royce, going. And it just made it awkward because he was going out with this girl. And uh, anyway, when we got to the bottom of it, it turns out that when she started going out with Roy, she'd showed him some photographs. And the photographs she'd showed Roy were, of course, the photographs um, which essentially she'd showed me. And she told Roy that I had done that to her, that I'd beaten her up. Um, mm horrendous situation to be in but we did have a situation we did have a um we were eventually invited to a, an event I, me and roy had avoided each other thanks to many people but we then invite i was invited to a boxing show down at caesars and streatham and i had this awful situation where roy actually went for us at an event um and i had no option but to defend myself so i pushed him over um you know i, I basically just pushed him back he fell back ended up on his backside and uh inadvertently i've ended up you know, having a, you know, deck Roy Shaw, not in the way that, you know, not a claim to fame, certainly not saying that we fought each other. I just defended myself. Um, I got whisked out of the venue and taken away to somewhere safe. And, um, you know, it just caused a hell of a stink in London. But luckily, Roy was all right. Um, the person who caused a lot of this problems was found out to be the liar that they were. And, you know, it was all shake hands and me and Roy ended up becoming pals again. But it was... Uh, not a nice situation to have Roy Shaw hanging over you, hanging over you at uh, every opportunity, but uh, not a not a situation that I back down from, man. Neil. Mm. Right, next quick story. QPR away. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I would treat Christian uh, Simpson, my best pal. They were a, a match in the capital, mm -hmm. and um, 
Nicky Butt and Peter Ramage had said they were going to get us some tickets, which uh, they kindly did. Um, and it was in the director's box at Queen's Park Rangers. Unfortunately, at, uh, at Queen's Park Rangers, the director's box isn't quite as good as Newcastle's. And it tends to be slap bang in the middle of the QBR fans. And we ended up in a position where Newcastle scored. Lovenkranz got the goal. And um, there was uh, uh, an old guy in front of me with his grand Ben. And uh, basically, they got um, they, they were verbally attacked by this guy in front. So there was more Newcastle fans in front of him. And I'm, I'm standing behind with Christian. And we're thinking, oh, we better say nothing. But anyway, uh, you, you can't help it. The guy started pushing the guy. Um, so I just says, yeah, mate, leave him alone. And he goes, oh. What are you going to do about it? It was like being a scene at Green Street. He turned round and I suddenly become the focal point of his attention. He wants to have a go at me. Um, anyway, before you know, you could see Newcastle United, there was a, a, a sound of like wildebeest running behind where me and Christian turned round and there's like 30 more QBR fans, all pals with this guy, all charging towards us. Christian went one way. I jumped over three rows. Past the guy who's given us grief and landed in the middle of these two Newcastle fans in the cup of soup. The steward came down, basically carried us out the ground, and my head was bleeding. I bashed off the back of the seat. I would have been chinned, I would have been or arrested. Um, yeah. Luckily, look, look doing that, obviously, I got a little scar on the back of my head, but um, I got I got escorted out and into the Newcastle fans. My mates had seen us. And they were laughing their heads off. And, of course, they started singing, he's here, he's there, he's flying through the air, Stevie Rafe. <laughs> Very lucky you weren't cabbaged at the end of that. Um, right, last one. Um, and uh, I'm, I, was, I was actually there on this occasion, so I, I kind of know the story. But tell the people watching, um, Steve Raff. Oh, God, I, I forgot you were there as well. Yeah, well, we, we went to... the cutlery. We went to an event in London and, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd had an issue. I'd had an issue in Newcastle about six weeks, um, no, six months earlier. Um, I'd been asked to go to a tribunal for a, a doorman who, who worked under me, basically. Um, he'd been, he was a head doorman, a head doorman for years. He got sent down to work at Chase Bar, where I was working at the time as head doorman, to work under me. And he was, they the, the sent him down there deliberately to, to upset him. Because he didn't want to take orders from me, because I'd done the I'd done the door six years less than him, or something like that, and um, it became it became a major problem for him. He couldn't talk about it. He, he wasn't the friendliest of guys, and we ended up in a situation where I would have to tell him to move around. We had to rotate the doorman inside the venue, and um, on this particular night, um, I asked him to, to move around, and he just turned around and said, "Who the fuck are you?" And I went, "Well, I'm your head doorman," and so he pushed us. And as he pushed us on the front door, the manager walked out, saw what he did, you're suspended. Go on, we don't need that, off the door. So he's effing and blind at me, and I'm going, well, I've never done anything. Um, and, and that was it. He just, he, you know, the, the gaffer had got what he wanted. He'd upset the apple cart by sending this doorman down to me. And um, now, the, now the manager, like, suspended him, sent him home. So that was it. So he ended up on a tribunal through work. Not a major thing, just you know, you, you know, you've got to explain your actions. And I ended up having to go as a witness. And I was told if I didn't go as a witness, that I would be, you know, either stripped of me head doorman's job or I could lose my job altogether. Um, 
you know, Dorman's contracts and stuff didn't exist. It was literally, you're employed by me, you'll do what I say. Um, so what I did was I went to the tribunal and I said, I'll, I'll, I'll rather submit my evidence, you know, handwritten. So that's what I did. So I, I kept a copy of it and I put the copy in. And basically I just said, I will happily work with this guy moving forward. But this is what he did. I've got no issues with him, etc. This is what my beliefs are. And this is why I think he did it. I just left it at that. Anyway, they did what they wanted to do. They got shot of him. They, they sacked him. And he blamed me. So, of course, fast forward a few weeks. Um, Stephen Sears gets out of prison. There's a big... Uh, a big get together. Everyone's out on the drink. Um, I was invited along, obviously as a pal of his, and uh, we ended up walking around Newcastle City Centre. And uh, I realised that we're going to be going to a bar where you know I don't want to go to uh, because this doorman's going to be working there. And the rest history. I got asked to go. I said I wasn't going to. I was going to go home, and I ended up going to the venue. And the doorman came straight out and told us I couldn't get in. And that was it. I said, right, okay, I'll go home. And he goes, you're not going home, Steve. He says, you know, if he's got an issue with us, if he's got an issue with you, then he's got an issue with us. Obviously, the doorman didn't have an issue with anybody who I was with, so we all got in. That was it. That was the beginning of a big problem for me. Uh, and I didn't do that out of any spite. I didn't do it, you know, deliberately. Um, it was unfortunate that this was the choice of place they wanted to go to. And I had the most uncomfortable night in the venue. I didn't want to be there. Um, I left, uh, you know, with everybody. So I was there till God knows what time in the morning. And that was it. Never give it any thought. And then the next morning I got a phone call. Um, the phone call was from a withheld number. And it was, you know, basically, you know, that's Steve Raff. You know, I'm going to, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're not happy with you. Um, you're mugging me off, mugging our club off. And, you know, you shouldn't have come to the venue. And um, that was it. And then the person hung up. I asked, well, I asked them what their name was and they, and they wouldn't tell us. And that was it. Um, so, I, you know, I made a few inquiries, didn't really get very far as to who this person was. But that was it. I just, you know, I left it at that and never gave it another thought. Then we went to London uh, for a night out. I'd done a little, uh, I'd done a little piece for the programme uh, to pay tribute to the two people whose event it was. And, um you know, we're, we're at the venue, we're sitting at the table, just waiting for the videos to start to pay tribute to these two people. And I get a tap on the shoulder and I hear, are you Steve Raff? And I'm like, straight away it registered. I'd heard that before, but it hadn't really, you know, clocked on. It's six months later where I'd heard that before. And I went, no, that's not me, mate. And he goes, well, it says you are in the program. And I went, well, that's Steve Wraith. That's my name, not Steve Raff. And that was it. You know, I got a clip. The doorman came over and the people were thrown out. But I didn't know who the guy was. Um, couldn't register it, but it's going over in my mind. Steve Raff, Steve Raff. Is it something to do with a QBR incident was my first thought. You know, didn't know who I am. There'd been stuff on the forums about me being involved. And it, it was just a strange situation. Anyway, the name came back to us from a couple of guys down there, Dave Courtney and Joe Pyle, who were, you know, quick, quick to draw the picked up some cutlery and were coming over to me defence. Um, but then they said who this guy was and, and what he did and, and which clubs he, he ran doors for. Suddenly I put, you know, two and two together and got four. Um, this guy was obviously the, the gaffer of the, the doorman who, whose club I'd been into with uh, the lads that night. Um, now I had a major issue. So that was where, that's what, it, you know, it all boiled down to. 
it you know i i never i never react stupidly in these situations i, I made myself a cuppa when i got home I, I subsequently had a couple of more phone calls um the next phone call was more serious they said they're in newcastle looking for us you know i wasn't sure if they were then they put a doorman who was in town on the phone to us and said you need to come and meet these people um I wasn't keen on meeting them because obviously I don't know who they are. Um, I realised that they've got bad intentions because obviously when I'd seen them at the club, I knew I was in serious trouble. Um, but through no, through no fault of my own, I hadn't actually done anything wrong, but I needed to work out a way of explaining that to these people in a level-headed way without you know getting myself into a predicament. Um, so I rang one of the people who was out with us that night and luckily they remembered the situation and uh, I explain it in the book, obviously, um, you know, they, they then make a phone call to somebody who is connected to these people. And that was it. I ended up in a position where I got a phone call from that person who had been, you know, on the phone and who I'd seen at that event. And, you know, once the truth was out that they said they didn't have an issue with me, but it was an absolute nightmare situation to be involved in. Um, I'm sure anybody would feel that, but yeah, I, you know, we felt it warranted a place in the book because it's quite a, a nerve jangling experience to go through. But it just shows you that you know, you know, the the the, the kind of extremes people will go to, to to get you into trouble if things don't you know don't go their way. Mm. I mean, there's there's so many um, great stories in the book that um, I think um, unless unless somebody's been with you along the way, it, it'll surprise a lot of people. I think a lot of things that haven't been kind of talked about before things you've not done interviews about it, it's it's quite a it's quite an eye-opener i think for for those who who, who don't know yet um yeah. we haven't really had, we haven't had a chance to touch on boxing i know there's been a few comments about um how much help you've been to to people in in in, in the boxing world yeah. you're in the book mal um yeah. Yeah, i mean anybody want to hear about the unlicensed game i mean me and gary furby have chatted about that on a previous interview you can find that on the youtube channel today but um yeah, I've I've had a, I've had some great times in the in the pro game. You know, eight years now in as a as a promoter, five years um, eight years as a promoter, five years as a manager. Um, it's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it. You know, the boxing's been great, and we'll, we'll cover a lot of that. We'll cover a lot of the events. You know, the the Mayweather event, the Tyson event. You know, Joe Frazier. You name it, they're all in there. Some some great stories. Said uh, you know Roberto Duran. Uh, just you know, there's something for everybody in the book. I think you know everybody who will en who will enjoy, you know, just reading about stuff like that will 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 enjoy the book. So, last word to you, Steve. Um, where can we get the book? When can we get the book? Um, and a, a last minute elevator pitch. Yeah, the book essentially is out now on Kindle, um, so you can get it on Amazon, uh, four ninety five. Um, but if you go on a War Cry Publishing uh, website. You can get uh, the details of the the hard copy of the book, which comes out, um, and it's a big old book. I think three hundred plus pages now, so uh, it's it, it's a big old book. Comes out the first week in July. Uh, that's obviously just a, dependent on the on the printers, really, um, essentially. But from my perspective, yeah, look, I think if you want to change your perspective on Steve Wraith, you need to get it. Um, if you want to read about Mike Ashley. Derek Lambias, Rafa Benitez, Amanda Stavely, uh, all of those situations. The real story behind the coffin march and those bloody gates that are up against the wall at St. James's Park, then um, this book's for you. Um, if you want to read about the boxing, both the unlicensed and the pro game, um, and how difficult it is to make a living in that that sport, then get this book's for you. And if you want to read an updated version on um, you know, my life with 
you know, the different criminals who I've met. Um, Eric Mason, Tony Lambriano, Paul Ferris, the Sears family. Again, there's plenty in the book, you know, for you on, on that score. So, you know, and really, I think I just want people to read the book and go, you know, from my perspective, you know, I want people, younger people to read it and go when they're at school, um, if, if, they're, if they're not doing as well, that life's not so bad. There's always something that you can do on the other side. You know, I'm, I'm self-made. Um, I continue to get new opportunities through my own endeavours. Um, you know, school isn't everything. Um, you need to stick in, do the best you can, like I did. Um, but ultimately, you know, um, the most important school is, is the school of life. And, you know, from my perspective, you know, experience and being streetwise is just as important as getting those qualifications. So as long as you've got a bit of everything, you'll always be all right. But you get nothing sitting at home, um, you know, on your settee, smoking a joint and having a glass of wine. You know, you've got to get out there and do it. And uh, nothing's impossible. You can be the best you can. And that's that's hopefully what people will get out of this book. Excellent. As usual, we've overrun. I'll just wind you up and off you go. Um, but uh, that's it from me. And uh, thanks ever so much for watching. Um, and uh, go and buy the book. Cheers, Neil. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks okay. For- Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.